Welcome to All Things Beer, a Pat's Pints Mark's Mugs podcast. I'm Pat Woodward. And I'm Mark Richards. Each month, we are joined by brewers, enthusiasts, and friends to explore the techniques, the culture, and the history of mankind's best invention. So grab a beer and join us as we discover a world of all things beer. Well, cool. We're back again at North High Brewing. Pat, what's going on? Hey, well, it's December. You know, Christmas is coming up, and we're down near what used to be called the Chicken Corner to talk to uh, one of the most interesting guys in brewing uh, that I know, and that's Jason McKibben from North High Brewing. Welcome. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invite, guys. Jason, good to see you, man. And good to see uh, you too. it's been a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's been a while for everybody. Yeah. I mean, just a global pandemic, yeah. nothing big going on. Mm-hmm. This is going to be our Christmas episode. So. Already we're into the Christmas beers. Jason has kindly provided us with uh, one that we tasted actually last Saturday at the original North High pub. This is like the traditional spices, mulling spices. It's pretty good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, I always thought everybody was over Christmas sales and there was too many of them and all that. And so we've really kind of avoided the style for several years we made some other versions of, you know, maybe holiday themed something or other, you know, cranberry and orange or whatever. But you know what? We have all these pubs and we just need to kind of stay in the lane right now as far as what we offer. And so we're like, let's do a Christmas sale. And um, we all kind of put our heads together and we decided to keep it kind of close to traditional, like you said, mulling spices. And uh, this one's cinnamon, nutmeg, clove and allspice, you know, nice roasty malts. And there you go. Yeah, it's really good. And I think with the pub model, like you guys have really expanded a lot lately. Mm-hmm. The first one was Dublin, right? Went in the old Brazen Head in Dublin. Yes. And that is also on, on North High Street. That is on North High Street. <laughs> yep. you're, you're getting at my next question. <laughs> How about Cincinnati? We could not find a high street. There oh, are man. some down there, but yeah, no, we're, we're really at the, at the mercy of Cohatch. Uh, as you know, they're yeah. our joint venture partner and phenomenally savvy real estate guys, and they find some amazing properties and, and appear to get them for a pretty good deal. But Hyde Park, I'd never been to Hyde Park uh, down in Cincy. I haven't spent much time in, in Cincy, and, and uh, that Hyde Park neighborhood's pretty nice. That's a good area. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Just to educate me, what part of Cincinnati is that in? Yeah, it's kind of a near suburb. Okay. Uh, it's it's kind of hilly. Uh, I've been told a lot of like college grads end up there after college and kind of the early years of work life there. Okay. Um, it's got a little main drag. Uh, that That's where our, uh, the Hyde Park uh, Brew Pub is. And uh, we're not open for lunch uh, okay. because it's used as a co-work space at lunch. And there's not a ton of nightlife down there. It's pretty sleepy. Um, but it really steady business ever since we opened and we opened like end of January of this year. Okay. Like, you would not think that would be a good time to open, but it, you know, it's worked. Yeah. That's awesome. You also have a location in Cleveland, Ohio city. Is that right? That's correct. And also in Springfield, Springfield too. Springfield's okay. a little different when it started. It was pretty much just a beer bar, more of a branding play, very limited function there. But since then, we opened a, a burger joint called Myers Burgers and Wings, which operates out of like the commercial kitchen that's at that Cohatch facility. Um, so it's a little bit more going on there now. Okay. But Springfield's definitely the smallest of the I see. properties. And what is Cohatch? Cohatch is a uh, it's a co-working space company founded here um, in Columbus by Matt Davis. 
you know, this is not WeWork. If people have heard about WeWork, I mean, that's a totally different business plan where they were in high rises charging massive rent and all that. I mean, this is a very accessible place for either entrepreneurs or people that are self-employed or even small businesses that just need a home base. Got it. Can okay. join Cohatch as a member and uh, for a very affordable prices, get access to the amenities that you need in an office okay. without having to run an office and pay a lease and all that kind of stuff. That's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. And so they're going like gangbusters. I mean, he's got some partners who are kind of franchising the concept outside of central Ohio. Uh, and we're partnering up with them. That's how the you know the Hyde Park and the the Ohio City came about. Uh, we're looking at out of state. Nothing's happened yet, but I mean they're going like gangbusters. I mean it could be very very big for them. And you know obviously the pandemic probably didn't help them. You know when I go there, we have a lot of meetings there. When we go there, there's people there. I mean it, sure. it's, it certainly hasn't crippled their business. Well, if you're working at home and you've got a family and things like that, you can imagine maybe having a space to go to uh, w- wouldn't be a bad thing. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. So with the different brew pubs, is it right to call them brew pubs or what would yeah, you call them? I'd call them brew pubs. Okay. I mean, we're we're producing you know, what we need to, to be a brew pub. So some of the beer on tap will be made from the production facility and some will have been brewed there. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's yeah. the idea. It reminds me a little bit of, you know, I went to graduate school in Oregon and there's the whole McMinimans. I don't know. Oh, are, you, yeah. are you familiar with to, McMinimans? I've been to a few of those. Yeah. And so they go around. I mean, they've been there since the 80s and, you know, they've got different brew pubs in different places. They try to find cool um, buildings. Um, there's some in old schools. And I don't know, you know, Mark. There's one in a theater just down on uh, Burnside, right? In Portland. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They turn a school into like a boutique hotel. Yeah, yeah, that's a neat one too. That's not too far from the airport. There's one in Bend that actually has a sauna in the basement, and it's oh, a, really? It's in a, some other historic. I think that might have been a school. I'm, I can't remember, but I remember one long night of a beer crawl in Bend, and we ended up there, and we're like, "Oh, we should go to the sauna. Like, what could go wrong?" Yeah, with that, that sounds you know? like a recipe to pass out. <laughs> we it did. Does, somebody, yeah, somebody had well. enough sense to say, "Well, I don't think that's a great idea." Yeah. That, that person wasn't me. <laughs> Yeah, you got to be careful in the sauna. You don't want the hot tub no, hangover. It's not a great combination after no. a long night of drinking. No. no, maybe switching gears a little bit. Back in the spring, we went out to Rustic Brew Farms and we did a podcast with Matt Cunningham. Mm-hmm. Love and that guy. I know that you use some of Matt's malts That's right. and some of your core beers. Mm-hmm. I thought we might talk a little bit about cover crop and, and maybe the honey wheat ale and you know what it's like. Uh, using Ohio ingredients in the beer? Well, I'm a very firm believer in using Ohio ingredients for a variety of reasons. You know, it keeps things close to home. And there's a big ecological advantage to this too. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you think about just trying to keep this planet from going to hell, you know, using things that haven't been transported halfway across the planet is a good start. Absolutely. And and even looking at that from a more local standpoint, the water plants in Columbus use surface water. So they're subject to agricultural runoff and and runoff from anywhere. But uh, the barley that's grown in Ohio is a winter varietal. That's why we call the beer cover crop. Technically speaking, barley grown for malting is really not a cover crop because it's being cultivated. So it's it's cash crop. But uh, we get the idea. Um, And uh, barley has been shown to be a phenomenal scavenger of phosphorus. And so the more... Winter barley that's planted in Ohio, near waterways especially, but anywhere in Ohio is good. It can scavenge the phosphorus before it makes it to the water, and cleaner water makes cleaner beer. So it just kind of makes sense 
to buy the barley close to home because if it cleans the water, then we make good beer and we make good beer, then we buy more barley and it all it works out, right? I, I mean, it's, it's good for everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it stops erosion too, you know, runoff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's lots of reasons to want to do that. I have to say, as a home brewer, you know, if I'm using any kind of two-row pail, I always use Matt's malt, and, and it's great. I mean, it reminds me of the European malts a lot, the character that it has. Are there challenges with sourcing uh, local malts and hops in terms of, like, them producing enough to meet production demand? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, Matt has expanded a lot. He's got another uh, – he probably showed it to you. Yep, yep. He's Second expanded system. a lot. Yeah, and, and, and he's got it going now. But Origin Malt uh, really supplies the remainder of my base. And they don't, like, make a pale malt, base okay. malt. So if I'm making a dark beer, I might use, you know, a different pale malt. But um, I use Origin Malt in the majority of my beers for base. And they're sourcing, you know, farmers all over Ohio for their barley. Are all of their malts based on Ohio-grown barley at this stage of the game? My understanding is that is the case. However, I believe the goal that they have is, you know, a very large-scale production facility, and they may not be able to get everything from Ohio. So yeah. I think they've talked to farmers in Michigan and Indiana and Kentucky and surrounding states, but my understanding is pretty much all Ohio. Okay. Yeah, I do know when uh, I talked to Matt, I did a story for the blog a long time ago, and at that point in time, he's like, well, actually, not very many people grow barley in Ohio because there was no market for it, Right, as it turns out. But I think that's changing. I don't know if you know the figures, but I think probably a lot more people, hopefully, are growing barley in Ohio. I think so. I think uh, Origin signed up a bunch, and Matt, obviously, is growing everything he malts. It's funny, too, because it'd be great if we went back to how it was, not not that pre-prohibition was great. But uh, Ohio was one of the biggest states in the country for barley cultivation, had some of the biggest malt houses in the country at one time. And and uh, so we can do it. You know, we yeah. just need to bring it back. Yeah, Matt, while we were recording the podcast, when we were out there in February, uh, he was actually at that same time drying malt as we were recording and... Uh, of course, listening to heavy metal. So <laughs> we just got our Iron Maiden tickets. Matt, if you're listening, he would be pumped to hear that. And that's nice. another great thing that comes with this product. Not often do you have the maltster and the farmer drive it over to you and have the time to shoot the ship for a few minutes before he goes. I mean, I don't know when he gets his work done. I, I don't know either. Yeah, because we always end up chit-chatting for like a half an hour when right? he drops malt off. <laughs> and, and he's always the one doing it. Um, yep. So... Uh, yeah, he's a great guy. I mean, super smart, quick study. I mean, he didn't yeah. know anything about malting when he got into it. and But he's got a, a guy who's like his technical consultant. And I know Matt's told me he's been to some seminars and some, you know, conferences and all that. And he's definitely rolling. So oh, yeah. I'm happy for him. And if you go back to that episode earlier this year when we got to visit with him, he's done a great job of it. And it's a great story. It is. It is. What about Ohio hops? You use Ohio hops also in cover crop. Is yes. that correct? Yeah. Yes. What's your assessment of where that industry is at? I guess you, it, it's not really an industry. I mean, that no. might be a bit of a stretch, I yeah. think. But, you know, what would you say about uh, the availability and the quality of Ohio hops? Uh, I would describe it as like a farmer hobby industry. Um, so the farmers that are into beer that want to grow hops will grow hops. But I, I don't think any of them really have any illusions about it being a moneymaker for them in any big way right um we buy most of our hops from uh Zachrick out in mechanicsburg yeah actually i went out there and did a with the homebrew club went out and we did a brew and then actually i wrote a, a recent story about um 
actually making wet hop ales, and they were mm. kind enough to give me some information. They're definitely nice people. Yeah, they're they're great people. Nick is with Ohio State, the extension program, okay, or okay. Ag- that's agriculture right. that's side. Right. Yeah, but yeah, they've been doing it now. I want to say I don't don't quote me on this. Five years, yeah, something fit, like that. That yeah. sounds about right. And yeah. they've expanded mm-hmm. and all that. I didn't buy enough from them last year, so I uh, I was scrambling to get to this next harvest. And uh, they recommended Neo Hops, basically up on Lake Erie. Okay. So he had some great Cascade, too. So um, he got me through. I've used other hop growers before. Some of them have pulled out, and they don't grow anymore. Yeah. So I've kind of just, like, centered on on those two. Uh, But I'm going to get kind of an update, too, because I guess at the OCBA conference in January, I'm on a panel of, like, you know, Ohio-cultivated beer ingredients. Okay. And so I'll probably hear more about what's happening with hops, but... Uh, it's tough. You know, it's wet and yeah. uh, you need to use way more, like way more chemical. You got to be really attentive. Otherwise your crop will be gone. And so, you know, it's tough. It is not easy. If you just think about hops worldwide, probably I bet 90% of the hops come from a number of places that we could count on our fingers and toes, right? You know, Yakima Valley, Willamette Valley, you've got the Hallertau region, uh, Kent in England, uh, you know, but not that many, Mm -hmm. you know. So, I mean, it's kind of an industry that benefits from a lot of concentration, I think. Yeah. And you have to have the right conditions. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Michigan's doing a great job right now. Like a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It has come up a lot. So upper Michigan kind of reminds you a little bit more of the Pacific Northwest in a lot of ways. Closer latitude. It's a similar latitude to other places. Exactly. So that plays a lot into it. And well, yeah. Well, Michigan, we'll you, uh, they're good at two things this year, growing hops and, and unfortunately football. <laughs> we, we, we won't mention the other <laughs> yeah, one. Let's not, let's not go there. Now, Mark and I went to the original North High Tap Room on the weekend, and um, as I usually do, I ordered uh, the pale ale which is just a fantastic beer because that was a silver medalist at the World Beer Cup in two, 2016. Yeah. yeah, that's a fantastic beer. Sometimes we like to get into different styles and in this podcast. And so I know you also have, in the year-round rotation, you have Five, which is a pale ale, and then you have Hopes, which is an IPA, right? And so how do you think about the difference between a hoppy pale ale and an IPA. I mean, obviously there's an ABV difference, but are there other things that people should be thinking about? How did you design those two beers to be both hop forward, but yet different from each other? Uh, You know, it's interesting when the modern day North High Five or the Pale Ale came out, it was dry hopped like you would see the description for BJCP. I mean, it it was probably just over a pound per barrel. Okay. Of hops. Right. Which is, at one point in time, that seemed like is, a lot, right? Yeah, but it's not a lot now, <laughs> yeah, right? Now, no. And, uh, but, <laughs> no. you know, especially that first batch and several later, I mean, obviously the first one came out when we started this place up in 14, was amazingly aromatic. And it was Mosaic and Nelson. Okay. And yeah. not a lot. Not a lot. And so I can't tell you why one pound per barrel back then now we require over two pounds per barrel to make five taste the way it does. I mean, other than crop year to crop year and whatnot, right. and, and we've had times where we haven't been able to get Nelson. Uh, now I finally have reliable contracts for Nelson, so it's back in there. But there's been times where it's not. 
So when the Nelson came out, we put Citra in. Okay. Also, it's kind of evolved. I mean, it used to have some crystal malt, like a, a low level. Uh, and then we got lighter and lighter crystals, and then we're like, screw it. We don't want any crystal in here anymore. <laughs> yeah, get it so, out of there. So now we're 15 Levavon crystal. Yeah, yeah so now we're like just doing a little bit of Munich. Okay, yeah. And so that's that's been that beer. Very little changes okay. to five. Whereas Hopes, formerly known as Rise, formerly known as just North High IPA, <laughs> called it Rise because when we were doing our naming rebrand, you know, North High Rise, and then we mm-hmm, put the mm-hmm. building on the can and talked about drinking on the rooftop and all that. That beer has had probably 200 different recipe changes. Okay. And we are always just searching for a better hop bill. Going way back, the original North High IPA, when North High opened, this is even before I joined, was not even dry hopped. It was just totally 90s English IPA. Okay, Okay, wow. Yes. And the hops in it were basically like... Tributes to uh, locations in Columbus. So it was Columbus, <laughs> Columbus okay, Summit, one, yeah. and Galena <laughs> were the hops. Wow. That's, yes. that's great. That what the a, hell? An interesting but not well-advised way to pick yes, your hops, right? Yes. There was such a dilemma because when we opened this place, we're like, the IPA is our number one seller at the tap room. Do we really want to mess with it or whatever? But I think in, in reality, it was the number one seller because IPA is just the general call when you go to a bar I'll take an IPA. Yeah. 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 Um, So should have had hindsight, as Gavin would say. Um, (laughs) But uh, we should have started dry hopping it sooner than we did. So the first batch was not dry hop that we brewed here. Then uh, we're like, we got to dry hop this beer. So we started messing with that. And we went through many of the hops that are available commercially uh, have been in this beer at one time or another. The grain bill has been all over the place. Uh, We had some English malts in there for a while. We were doing Golden Promise. It was about half the bill. It had some crystal to start, and that went down to caramalt. The malt bill has gotten a lot lighter. The hop bill has increased. I mean, now it's got citra. It's got all the the hot hops now. Idaho 7, maybe. Uh, Oh, no, maybe. I was looking at the hop bills, but I can't remember. That goes in one of them. I can't remember. Yeah, Idaho 7 is actually in Final Countdown. Um, oh, okay. Which we just can today. It will be released next week. Okay. Oh, that's actually, exciting. I, I, this is what I have right here. And it's it it sat there for a while. We got brewed it a little bit too soon. So it sat in the fermenter, and it got really good. Okay. Uh, sitting there and kind of just steeping on the hops a little bit, even though we kind of, you know, purge them out. But um, So I'm excited about that. But Idaho 7, I think there is a little bit of Idaho 7 in Hopes. Um, there's Chinook is back in Hopes. There's okay. a little Centennial. Um, we're going to start putting Strata in it. I got a contract oh, a for Strata, yeah. um, and is now available with this crop year. I just ordered it today. Uh, so the next batch is going to have Strata. Um, we love Strata. We made some hazies with Strata that were killer. You know, CBC made a whole series of wet hop beers this year. Yeah, they I had a few of those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the Strata actually was my favorite yeah. probably. Yeah. That's a rocking hop. Yeah. It's great hop. Um, some of those trends you're talking about, like the reduction of the crystal malts, the more dry hopping, that's kind of in line with the whole industry has been doing that, right? It reminds me of the OCBA meeting that was in Columbus when Tom Shellhammer was out here. Mm-hmm. And I think you know Tom, right? I invited yeah, him. Yeah, you, you were the one yeah, who got him here. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's written some papers about, you know, the diminishing returns on rates of dry hopping. Yes. You know, you, you dry hop up to a certain point and then you can keep putting more in, but you're not, it's not making the beer any better or even any more aromatic. You know, upping the dry hopping level on the five, do you think that's because the hops themselves were changing and you needed that to keep pace? Or do you think 
uh, you know, how did that affect the sensory outcome of the beer? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Okay. I mean, it's, it, you know, we, we have, uh, 40 barrel fermenters and 60 barrel fermenters here. We don't have anything bigger than that. Um, but I've noticed better hop, uh, maybe extraction is the word or whatever mm-hmm. in the forties yeah, yeah. and we have a 20 too. And so and in the twenties, then the sixties. And, you know, I, I haven't spoken to Tom about this, but I really wonder about like fermenter geometry and size versus sure. hop extraction. I mean, I think, you know, it's such a paradox and it's unfortunate that when you're a small brewery, you got small fermenters, you can mega hop beers. You can, you know, you can do things you can't do with a big brewery, right? You're successful. People buy your beer. You scale up, you get bigger fermenters, and then all of a sudden, you can't replicate the beer in yeah. a bigger fermenter. I mean, look at it. There's examples all over the industry. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, it's challenging. You know? yeah. Not that it's impossible, but it's very challenging. Well, as a chemist, and sometimes when I teach freshman chemistry, I talk about solubility. And the one thing that comes to mind is the uniformity of the solution, right? The hops are not uniformly all... Uh, distributed from top to bottom, right? I mean, either depending on how you put them in and how you, you know, what you do, they might be more at the top and the bottom. And you might just get that it gets saturated in that region where most of the hops are. And that just is more problematic in a really big vessel than it would be in a smaller vessel. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And and for the hop compounds that we're looking for that are only slightly soluble oh, yeah. in the best <laughs> of situations, you hit solubility very, very quickly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what we love is the, the aromas that those bring. And if, if you're smelling something, that means it's leaving the liquid at a pretty fast rate. And so the, these are not molecules that want to be in an aqueous solution. Mm-hmm. And so they come out easily, which is great for aroma, but hard to get them out of the hops into the beer before you put it in the package. Yep. Yeah, yeah it, it reminds me of the first batch of Stardust we ever did, which three pounds per barrel, you know, David Bowie tribute beer. So we yeah. did the space hops, right? Uh, Apollo, Comet, and Galaxy. Right. You can't go that wrong with a lot of those either, though. Right. <laughs> Galaxy, yeah. good luck getting. I know, right? I still have, I have one contract left for Galaxy, and I okay. think I'm giving up because they just keep telling me no. Yeah. You know? wow. um, but yeah, we're going to be able to make it through this year of Stardust and next year with Galaxy, and then we'll see where it goes. Okay. But at any rate, throw all the hops in. This is before the days where we, what we call fluffed the beer, where we kind of per, you know blow mm. CO2 in the bottom to kind of get them up again. We throw it in, wait it a couple weeks, go to taste the beer. There's no hop character at all. And we're like, what the hell? Right, you know, it's got to be in there somewhere or whatever. So I, we said we have to fluff it now. You know, I I was, you know, all paranoid about oxygen and whatever. I'd never done it. You know, my previous experiences were anchor and AB, and you know that was not even a thought. (laughs) Um, We did it, and boom, like the the aroma just erupted. It was all in the bottom of the fermenter, just waiting to come out, and. You know, two. I want to say it was like two weeks. They they sat there, and uh, and it was amazing. I mean that that yeah. that that first release was amazing. <laughs> it was. I and, had that. I remember that. Yeah. It was fantastic. Yeah. Thanks. And uh, and so, but now you you read you can really get in your head about dry hopping, and you can read so much contradictory information about do's and don'ts of dry hopping. But like one of them is like, well, you don't want to leave the beer on the hops too long. Well. Sometimes you have to, to get the extraction, you know, and, and so we kind of walk that tightrope too. But like, like I was saying with this, this batch of final countdown, I mean, it sat a little bit longer than it should have, but 
it really took the hops in a, a positive way. It doesn't taste like, you know, like everybody, if it, the hops are on there too long, it tastes grassy or green or chlor, some right. kind of chlorophyll yeah. flavor. Um, but yeah, yeah it, it's a, uh, tough, it's challenging sure. to like find that middle ground. Now this final countdown that's going out to stores, we're going to deliver it to weeks. premium tomorrow. So okay. it'll hit the stores. They'll start delivering on Tuesday. Okay, cool. Not yeah. many uh, Europe tribute <laughs> right? beers out there, right? which is kind of cool. You know, I mean. Well, it, here's the story for that. It was the first double IPA after Stardust. And we're like, well, are we going to have Stardust be a year-round beer or just be a seasonal kind of beer? And everybody's like, well, you got to make it a seasonal because if it's around year-round, no one will care. And that's another paradox of success. Sure. Like, well, you want to sell more of it, right? Well, you're going to sell less if you actually keep it around longer. So we're like, fine. So we had just smelled Idaho 7 for the first time at the CBC probably 20, I don't know if that was 2015 or 2016. I can't remember. But Idaho 7 was kind of new on the scene. We're like, oh, this is good. You yeah. know, this is really pungent. I good re- for a double IPA. I remember going down to the tap room one time. I should disclose that I'm from Idaho. I grew up in Idaho. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes. And so, uh, and and you guys had a beer on called Butch Otter. Right, which was the, the prototype of, of... That's right. And uh, yeah, Butch Otter, for people who don't know, which will be almost everyone who listens to this podcast, was the, the governor of Idaho for maybe maybe eight years or something like that. And uh, I don't know, he, he got pulled over for drunk driving and got yeah, off got or something like that. Yeah. There's some kind of thing like that. Yeah. yeah. So, I, But as an... As an Idahoan, it made me laugh when I saw there was a beer called Butch Otter. He made the news for some kind of scandal, and that's right. how we heard about it. And we're like, well, it's Idaho 7 Hops. <laughs> yeah. Let's call it that. But uh, <laughs> some other people didn't realize it was the governor of Idaho, and we got some complaints about it. And people, so People might have been, uh, assumed that meant, meant something else. Something else, yeah. yeah. I could have, well, that can happen very easily in today's yes. society, can yes. it not? Yeah. So we're like, well, we don't need to, that kind of publicity, <laughs> so we will change the name. And so we're like, well, let's stick with the space themes. And so we're just racking our brain. And, you know, naming beer is the worst part of making beer. It's interesting it's for sure. Yeah. Um, so we're we're sitting around and we're like, well, how did this go? I think we were trying to stick with the Bowie theme. Okay. And just kind of thinking about songs back then. You know, everybody's heard that riff. You know, now it's sorry, it's in your head now. You sure. Know? Oh sure. yeah. Yeah. Um, That's all you have to say. But uh, so we do a little research, and as it goes, uh, they that was an instrumental. Uh, originally, the final countdown. Final countdown didn't have a name, didn't have lyrics, and they used Europe used to play it to get their fans jacked up before the show started. It was like just an intro, and and so and then finally, like their manager or somebody uh, told them, they're like, "You got to put lyrics this riff. It's too good to keep <laughs> off an album." And so they basically took David Bowie. They took a, a, a Space Oddity. Okay, and, and they're like, let's just kind of bend the theme a little bit, and so it, there's not a lot to the plot of the, the song. It's <laughs> sure. going going to Venus <laughs> and whatever, right, right, um, similar. But uh, we're like, this is perfect because there's a connection yeah. to the first beer. Everybody knows the name, yeah. Um, and then you know, after that, it's just you know, big double IPA. Oh, I <laughs> so, love it. I love yeah. it. So music themed, and you know, David Bowie had a lot of different hairdos over the year, hairstyles, I should <laughs> say, and. You're not going to beat Joey Tempest in that final countdown video, I don't think. I mean, hair was flailing.
Maybe not everybody knows like your history in brewing, Jason, but I don't know anybody else who has the kind of range of experience that you have. Maybe you could kind of walk us through how you got to North High, the stops you made before then. Sure. I've been in the brewing industry my whole career, 21 years. I got there because I studied uh, food science in college. At the University of Illinois? At the University of Illinois. Not to go too much into this, but I ended up at the University of Illinois because my girlfriend from high school went to the University of Illinois. Okay. And I wanted to go there too. And I did not apply myself as a student in high school. And the University of Illinois is a pretty tough school to get into. Yeah, it is. Even for in-state kids. So they're like, well, you're not going to study chemistry or you're not going to do engineering, which is what I thought I would do. But they're like, well, there's this program called food science and uh, no one knows about it. So it's easier to get into. And it's all the same first two years of classes anyway. So I did that. Broke up with my girlfriend uh, first semester of (laughs) freshman year. And uh, never looked back with food science. I mean, I thought, well, you know, if it didn't work out, I'd just transfer out or whatever. But I loved it. I mean, it was was tangible. You know, the science is so tangible. Junior year, I had a food and industrial microbiology course. Okay. We learned about brewing, uh, winemaking, cheesemaking, sauerkraut, citric acid, you know, soy sauce, whatever's produced by fermentation. Any fermented food stuff, basically. And And I looked at my friend's in the same aisle that we were sitting with. And I'm like, I'm going to be a brewer. And they're like, do it, whatever. Great. And so I finished school and I sent a resume to Goose Island for an internship. And they said, no. And, uh, and I said, okay, fine. And I was like, well, I really like college. So let's just keep going. (laughs) So I can relate. Yeah. It was either Cornell or UC Davis. Those were the two food science programs that I'd whittled it down to. Cornell had a guy from Stroh. I want to say his name was Siebert, either Siebert or Seedler or something like that. All right. Okay. Uh, and then UC Davis had a big brewing program, yep. but they had no brewing professor because Charlie Bamforth had not been hired and Lewis just retired. Oh, okay. So, so Bam- was, where did Bamforth come from? Where was he at before he came to UC Davis then? Well, I don't know if he was at Bass or if he was at, uh, he was at like a brewing research consortium. In the UK somewhere? In the UK. Yeah. So he came from the UK. It was a global search to find the next brewing professor okay. at Davis. So I ended up picking Davis because I just liked the vibe. And, you know, the brewing professor at, at Cornell was not available because he was in Geneva. And my offer was just for Ithaca. And okay. so I'm like, I couldn't even do research for him anyway, even yeah. if I went there. So forget it. Davis is great. I do not regret this decision <laughs> at all. So I'm there at Davis. Can't do research for Charlie because he's not there yet. So I did whey protein research okay. with uh, Dr. John Crocta, who uh, was a phenomenal mentor for me and a great guy. At any rate, the, the search for Bamforth was going on during my first year of my master's there and they hired him. And so I got to take his first class at oh, wow. UC Davis. Yeah. And that's cool. He's awesome. I mean, I, you guys have probably met him or heard him or uh, whatever. Definitely heard. Yeah. yeah. I've heard him speak. Yeah. Uh, phenomenal guy and so much energy and just, I mean, world-class, I mean, yeah. in every way, you know, for brewing science. Um, and hilarious. I mean, so <laughs> funny too. His lectures were great. And he, and he was new to California, new to America. I'm sure he's been there before, but he was so curious about like California and burritos and, <laughs> and like all of this stuff that everybody, you know, in California, like took for granted or whatever, but he was just like, 
explain this to me. And yeah. like, there was a student who came to class one day with a gigantic burrito that he got at the union. And, and like Charlie just let him have it like the whole time. Like, what are you doing with that here? And, and whatever is hilarious. So I uh, love that guy. But yeah, I was hooked. I was hooked on beer. I definitely knew I wanted to do beer. I thought briefly about winemaking because UC Davis is a great winemaking sure. program yeah, too. That's true. And I took those classes before the brewing classes. And I'm like, I could do wine too. But then once I took brewing, I'm like, um, I'm in. And you know, at the time, and I don't know how much now, they're like, well, if you can get a job with Anheuser-Busch, you should take it because they're a uh, very great company. You get tons of training. You get paid way better than craft beer. You get a lot of opportunities. You get to learn to be a manager and this and that. And if you don't like it, it looks great on the resume. And so I went through like, I don't know how many rounds of interviews that AB does, but it's, it's really ridiculous. They really put you through the paces. I got an offer. Uh, and I started as the starting job is basically a frontline supervisor on a shift wow. at, a, at okay. a brewery. And so I was uh, 23 years old managing 55-year-old Teamsters <laughs> at Fairfield at midnight at wow. Fairfield, California. Okay. okay. And it was daunting. And yeah, they I can were, imagine. They were a tough crowd. They were probably like, oh, this college guy, what does he know? The joke when I was there was, since when did we start hiring 12-year-olds? <laughs> <laughs> that came up in a, large, in a large training session. The trainer was like, does anybody have any questions? This guy, this teamster, raises his hand, looks at me in the back and is like, since when did we start hiring 12-year-olds? It's a good wow. first day wow. at the office. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, it's great to be here. Um, um, but you know, you, uh, you just, I, I, you know, kill them with kindness. And the thing I think that set them off a lot was, you know, I'm not the only one. You know, there was a lot of young managers, sure. and they're getting sick of it because it's very easy to disrespect yeah. uh, people. I've seen other managers not treat an employee who's got 25 years of experience not very well, and 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 there you go, yeah, you're, sure, you're toast. So at any rate, trial by fire. Um, and then they transferred me all over the place. I worked in Los Angeles for a while. They have a brewery in Van Nuys. I worked in uh, St. Louis. I managed the Research Pilot Brewery, which was interesting. Oh, that would be interesting. We're going to come back to we, that. Uh, We're going to we'll come back to that. We'll get yeah. back to that. Yeah. A lot of stories, a lot of similarities to then and now. Okay. Let's, let's remember that, too. Yeah, okay. Hmm. Then I got transferred here to Columbus in 2005. Okay. And I uh, did some a variety of brewmaster roles, and I was the QA manager for a short time. Uh, and then by 2012, I just, I was like, man, the craft beer revolution is happening and I'm on the sidelines and sure. InBev had taken over and the culture had changed on, you know, 180 from what it used to be. And it used to be, you know, the old AB had its issues and the new AB with InBev had its issues. When and, was the buyout or when was the takeover? Uh, 09. By, 09. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. I did a couple of years with, right. with the InBev gang and. Uh, now I don't know a soul over there, and and uh, I mean it's totally different than what what it's used to be. Um, but at any rate, I'm like I need to see what I can do. I mean at that point I was 12 years with AB. Okay, and so I'm like I'm not going to make it another 20, you know, yeah, at, at this rate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the requirements for getting promoted or advancement or whatever is you have to be totally mobile. Wow, that must get old after a while. It gets yeah. old. I yeah, mean, sure. when I was with old AB. I worked in four locations in five years. Wow. Yeah. That were not close to each other. You know, like I had a lot of boxes that the movers just put another sticker on, wow. you know, yeah. to move. It never got opened. When you're really mm -hmm. young, I guess you can flow with it if you don't have a lot going on, you know. Right. 
which is a lot how tying I did you down. It. You yeah. know, if you're single, of course, but yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Eventually, you have to realize I got to call home somewhere eventually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so I got married in '08. You know, my wife had a job, and she's like, "So I have to get a new job every time you move." And yeah, and I'm like, uh, "I don't know if I want to. I, I'm not going to be that guy." And so I told him, "I'm like, I'm not. I'm not mobile." And now you get put down on this row, and okay. you're you're never going to get offered a promotion ever again. Wow. I mean, that's how it goes. Yeah. That's a weird culture in a way. Uh, yeah. Well, it seems weird it's to a, me. It's yeah. a large corporation yeah. culture. Yeah. You know, if you want to advance, you'll do whatever you need to do at the company. Them, yeah. You know, the old AB, at, at least you knew it was pretty much going to be in the United States. There were contract brewing all over the place, but it was very few people. Now, with the, the new AB, with InBev, you could get sent anywhere. They have operations on every continent. At any rate, if I'm going to move, it's going to be on my terms. So I started looking for a job. Obviously, there's not a lot of breweries in Columbus at, at the that time. time. Yeah. So I'm like, well, I sent some resumes out, and I had some, you know, talked to some friends and whatnot, and, and uh, ended up in Anchor. You know, and I love San Francisco, <laughs> and I'm like, hey, yeah. this, is, this is awesome. So I uh, moved, moved back to San Francisco, or moved back to Northern California, the first time I lived in San Francisco in 2012. And as the production director. So the reason I was hired is Mark Carpenter, who's the longtime brewmaster, employee since 1972 at Anchor, was finally retiring okay. after a phenomenal wow. career. Yeah. I mean, he's a legend. You know, I mean, he's got all the big awards. That's I mean, 40 and years. Yeah. 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 I was basically taking over the day-to-day. He was stepping away. He stayed on as a consultant. And uh, that's what I did for the next two years. Okay. And it was a little odd. Anchor had been sold. Fritz Maytag had sold it in 2010. Right, right. The new owners were former executives from Sky Vodka, and they had a big plan to grow Anchor and get on the ride, you know? And and the CEO was a a man named uh, Keith Greger. Okay. And he um, was next-door neighbors to uh, Tony McGee. Oh, right, from Lagunitas, yeah. And he was regaled nightly, I believe, by (laughs) Tony about how fast Lagunitas is growing, yeah, and uh, and he's like, well, we should be able to do that too, and and it was a lot harder, you know, growing Anchor Steam, which is not hoppy and yeah, and kind of dusty as a style and a uh, classic. Let's just throw that in, and there. it's a classic. Yeah. I'm not it's taking anything away from Anchor. It was just not on trend like yeah. IPAs were. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it was hard. There was a thought about expanding and, and opening a new brewery, but then. The thought was, well, let, we need to maintain a, the provenance of San Francisco. Anchor's from San Francisco. We can't just open a brewery on the East Coast like everybody else is. And uh, Anchor found a Pier 48, which is basically across from McCovey Cove from AT&T Park or whatever it's called oh, now. Right. It's not uh, AT&T. Where, where, where the Giants play. Where played. the Giants play. Yeah. And they're like, okay, we're going to build a 500,000-barrel-a-year brewery on Pier 48. And I was like, come again? <laughs> how many barrels? Five hundred. How about five hundred? What was the production at that point in time at the, uh, the original facility? That first will. year uh, that I was there in yeah. 2012, I want to say we did 132,000. Okay. So this is Whoa. triple. Wow. Yeah. When you want to make that much beer over water, when you have to hire a marine engineering company to build your brewery, <laughs> you've probably picked the wrong location. It sounds expensive. Yeah. It was very expensive. It was a 90-year-old pier that had half burned down at one point. Oh, my they God. They were using it for parking for the Giants games. Um, so at any rate, I was struggling with that quite a bit and hemorrhaging cash living in San Francisco. 
Uh, I mean, yeah, it yeah. Was I'm sure just, the cost of living is pretty high. Like, what I, was your rent, for example? I paid forty seven hundred a month. Holy for a house in Potrero oh, wow. Hill, yeah. uh, where the brewery was. Yeah, and the longer I was there, the more of a deal I thought I was getting. I yeah. mean, it really warps your perspective. Yeah. This person's paying 6000 a month. This person's paying 7500 a month. And I'm like, oh, this is not so bad. And then you look back and you're like, no, it's really, really bad. <laughs> it's yeah. really bad. I'm doing some uh, approximate math in my head, but that's $50,000 a year in rent, right? Could have bought a house yeah. in Columbus in cash in a couple of years. <laughs> that's right, yeah. It's staggering. I mean, yeah. if I didn't have my wife uh, as pharmacist, and so she has a good job too, I mean, we wouldn't be able to afford that. I mean, I was being paid well at Anchor, but I mean, holy moly. And then we're like, well, we're going to have a family, and you know, what are we going to do about kids and this? And you start to think, and you're like, I, I just can't live here anymore. Yeah. And, and so at that point, concerned about this expansion plan, thinking about my life in general, and Gavin... Okay, so let's get back to this. So how do I know Gavin? So um, getting back to Illinois, in my college days, one of my roommates uh, in college was a guy named Paul Giersdorf. Okay. Great friend of mine still to this day, as is he friends with Gavin. And he went to high school with Gavin at Hilliard High School. Okay. And great friends. Paul's like, well, I'm from Columbus. He's like, let's go back and watch the Illini play the Buckeyes in a football game. And so this is 1995. Okay, yeah. And so we drove here and did a road trip, and uh, I slept on Gavin's floor on Frambies. And that's <laughs> oh, how on Frambies? Okay, on Frambies. near the Outer Inn or someplace near like that? Near the Outer Inn, yeah. very okay. close. Yep. And uh, we watched the Eddie George run all over the Illini <laughs> that year in 1995. Huh. And, uh, so the Illini did not take home the Illibuck that they year? They did not take home the Illibuck, no, sadly, <laughs> no. But that's okay. And then we returned the favor the next year. The whole Columbus gang came to Champaign. Okay. And Gavin was in Included in that. And so, you know, we got to know each other a little bit. And then Paul got married shortly after college. And so I saw Gavin again. And then I got transferred here in 05. And I asked Paul, I'm like, is he still in Columbus? And he's like, oh, yeah. And so I looked him up and he was bartending at Metro. You remember Metro over there, South High? It's like that trolley building. Metro. Oh. What was that? Just north of the Highback. Oh, right. Okay. Down in German Village. Next door. Yeah, yeah. Next door. Yeah, yeah. Was Metro in the old Hoster Brewing brew pub? That was the right? old Hoster yes. Brewing. Oh, yes. Wow. yes. Okay. I was sitting here thinking, Metro, Metro, why did I hate that place? Because <laughs> it took over for Hoster. Because, yeah. yeah, I spent a lot of time yeah. at Hoster's. A uh, fun fact about Hoster's is the individual who started up that brewery, who like basically installed the equipment and commissioned it or whatever, uh-huh. Dan Carey. Oh, from oh, New really? Gardens? Yeah. He I used, had never heard this before. He used to work for JV Northwest. Wow. And that's a okay. JV Northwest system. That's wow, a that's a cool. interesting mm-hmm. uh, story. Yeah. yeah. Fun fact. I have to say, I, would, I never went there, but I, was, I can picture where yeah, you're talking no, about. No, I remember. It was a big place, and it was kind it was of popular kind of like for club, a while. Yeah. It was clubby. So he was doing that, you know, like the happy hour shift. Okay. And so I'd stop there after work, and I bought a house in the German village. And okay. uh, so I, I live stumbling distance from the Lowback, so the, okay. Beck, the Beck Tavern. Um, so it was close. Whenever we became fast friends and, you know, time went on and I moved to Anchor. And then while I was at Anchor, North High was founded. Right. North High was founded in 2012, 2011? Uh, we, opened, we opened 2012. Okay. It says established 2011 because, as Gavin says, when you come home and tell your wife that you quit your job and you're <laughs> opening your brewery, that's when you're founded. Huh. So, so you're coming up kind of on a 10-year anniversary. Yeah, yeah. in a way. In yes. a way, yeah. But we'll wait till next year for the full festivities. Next year is the official, yeah, okay. yeah uh, December 28th. Okay. Yeah. Put it on my calendar. Yes. So I was sitting in a particularly frustrating marketing meeting at Anchor, and Gavin texted me, and he's like, hey, 
we're doing an expansion. We need a new brewmaster. What do you think? And we had talked originally about me coming on, and I was still at AB, and I'm like, I don't know if I can go AB to start up brewery. Because it was pretty small yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. so we passed then, and I was like, let's do it. And so that's when I moved back. It was uh, May of 2014. Yeah, so that's how I ended up at North High. On topic with Anchor Brewing, we brought some of the Christmas ale this year, which I've been kind of trying to suss out a little bit. And I mean, it's very dark. It was very dark last year as well. Probably the darkest they'd ever had last year. This year, I'd say it's opaque as it gets. What are you guys getting in this? I mean, obviously, it's in the porter vein. For some reason, I started picking up some kind of like cherry Coke vibe. There is something there that I can't nail. It's always a mystery on this beer, so only you probably know all the recipes. Which uh, the, the recipe was very, very closely guarded. Like yeah. When I was there, it was a serious business not to tell anybody what was in this. Now, looking at the label, it's interesting, too, that it says 7% ABV. It was not 7% when we made it. It used to be like high fives. I haven't had this beer in years, to be honest with you, but what I do know is... Mark Carpenter, whenever anybody asked what's in Anchor Christmas Sale, he would say it's none of your business. But I will say one thing. There is no allspice in Christmas Sale. He would always say, no allspice. Verboten. Verboten. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, And then on top of that, what I remember the most about Christmas Sale back circa 2012, 2013, was juniper. So there was a lot of juniper berries. It was very medicinal to me. But... I don't get any of that now. I get maybe cardamom, which okay, I know yeah. they used to use. Um, I could see that. The funny ingredient that uh, the filter seller guy, Tom Littig, used to always laugh about was they would add, I don't think it was post-filtration. It might have been, though, uh, was orange flower water. Oh, interesting. Yes, which is more probably used in perfumes than okay. food. It was yeah. food grade. <laughs> don't get me wrong. But Tom's a very gruff, gruff little man and very funny. But he's he, in this like really gravelly voice. You'd be like, it smells like a French whorehouse. <laughs> and we're like, okay, Tom, we do not need that imagery right now. There is myriad ingredients that used to be in this. I don't know what's in this now. I'm sure. grasping at straws too. But Yeah, cardamom might be there for sure. And there is some fruity element though. There is, there is. I agree with you. I mean, do you agree like almost like a cherry Coke, Dr. Pepper, whatever you want to mm-hmm. say? Well, you know, the base cola flavor is cinnamon, lemon, lime. And there was lemon peel in mm-hmm. this when I was there. Okay. And there could be cinnamon too. I mean, I think there was actually. Yeah. So... Yeah, it, it is kind of a cola flavor. Sure. That's yeah. good. All right. We're getting all the secrets, Pat. We've got yeah. Jason now. He doesn't work there anymore. <laughs> We're getting all the secrets. It is kind of fun to get this every year. Of course, the rebranding has caused a little controversy, yeah. but you yeah. know they've rebranded before just way longer than we were drinking it, but at least... They have the consistent theme on this and always a different tree on the label. Yep. It's such a cool tradition. These Christmas ales for a while, I kind of got really sick of. You were mentioning earlier, like, ah, people were kind of tired of how many times do I have to drink a Christmas candle or 
Christmas potpourri. Mm -hmm. But now that people aren't making them as much, I kind of really cherish them. I mean, we got to go to the Barley's Christmas tapping last month. And really, since the global pandemic that we are still not all the way out of, going and doing something that felt normal because so many things were canceled for a year. And I tell you what, I was never so giddy to say, this is something I have always done every year. And here we are amongst friends sitting, doing it again. It's just something you don't want to miss. I will have to say there's something to be said for the Christmas sale. Uh, I mean, nothing makes you feel better than to go down to Barley's and Angelo to come over to your table and talk to you, do his laugh. And uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was great. And actually, last year, we had Angelo for the Christmas episode. That's right. Mm. That's right. Uh, yeah, and nice. we had we had Anchor. <laughs> yeah. You know, you had to have it. It's tradition. So yeah. I do like the things that are tradition. And I was delighted to have North Highs when we were at the pub. And uh, thanks for sharing it again tonight. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to do it. I mean, we don't bake a turkey like every month either that's at home. Right. You know, it's, that's it's, it's, it's that kind of thing, really. Yeah. I mean, I do have a Christmas sale question, Jason. Since you've lived in various parts of the country, the idea of the way that the winter warmer in Ohio, because I have not always lived in Ohio, but if you lived in Oregon or California or England, you would not like naturally say, oh, it's got to have ginger and cinnamon and honey, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, would you agree with me? I would agree with you, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the style is uh, wassail or whatever. Yeah, it's kind of like a beer based on wassail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the English don't do that, by the way. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> we invented wassail. <laughs> I just want to point that out. Now, how about Sam Smith's, though? They have the winter welcome. Sam Smith's does make... Uh, they, they do actually make one that is a Christmas-style winter warmer. I don't think it has ginger and cinnamon. I don't think it has spices, actually. Well, we would have to go back and listen to last year's podcast, which we would encourage yeah. everyone else out there to do if you missed it. But I actually think that one... Isn't very much like an Ohio winter warmer. Well, we'll just have to stop by Carrie's. We'll, we'll have to yeah. get some more. Stop by Palmer's on the way home. While we're talking about the Christmas sale, you've got a special, I, I, I don't know how I can describe it better, but why don't you tell us this? Uh, I was flabbergasted in- at this presentation. <laughs> so it, this was a great surprise for us. Well, this bottle was made when I was at Anchor. Okay. Uh, and it was my fault. I take full responsibility for this. This was my first, you know, run. Uh, in craft beer and really having to deal with a lot of seasonals. And like I was saying, the owners really wanted to grow. Christmas sale back then, it may still be today, uh, was their number three best-selling by volume beer Okay, of the whole wow. portfolio. Wow. And so- it was produced and sold in... <laughs> Two and a half to three months <laughs> yeah. of the year. Just I would never have thought that. I mean, now, massive it, amounts of Christmas yeah. sale are made. Steam beer must be at the top. What's the number Steam two? Steam beer's number one. Liberty was number two. Yeah, of course, yeah, okay. Liberty. Yeah. Yeah. The, original, the original the original IPA? IPA. Yeah. Absolutely. All Cascade. The first shipments of Christmas sale would go out late August to Sweden. So Sweden, we ship three full shipping containers of Anchor Christmas sale to Sweden every year. Wow. Um, and then... The East Coast would get it in September, and then as we got closer to October, then it went closer to California, and then by November, everybody's got it. It's selling whatever the rule was. Anchor Christmas sale could not be sold before November 1st. Uh, now that's not true. I think you can get it in October. Every, I mean, it's called seasonal creep, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it just sure, keeps sure. going earlier and oh, earlier. Yeah, you got to yeah. sell more. You got to yeah. sell it earlier because yeah. you can't sell it later, right. which is what I found out the hard way because... In early December, I had a 150-barrel batch of Christmas sale. I call up the sales guys, and I'm like, okay, it's ready to go. And they're like, we don't want it. 
And I'm like, what do you mean you don't want it? It's not Christmas yet. They're like, yeah. it needs to be on the shelves by now. Like, it's oh, not man. happening. This is part of what's wrong with distribution all the way around. Oh, oh, I mean, yeah. when, when you're seeing Christmas items out in July, I mean, it's, it's, not it's right. where it's heading. I yeah. mean, and you definitely have Oktoberfest out by the 4th of July, yep. which just doesn't even make any sense. doesn't make any no. sense. So now all we're guaranteed is that we might be able to get the beer, but it's all going to be old. You know, so yeah. congratulations. Yeah. We're all drinking old beer all the damn time. <laughs> so I'm like, well, you know, we're talking about it. We're like, what are we going to do with it? We're going to dump 150 barrels. Fortunately, this had already been kind of discussed was, well, what if we distilled it in, this, in previous years? Not not this year or not in 2012. And we're like, they're like, well, if we're going to do it. Might as well do it now. So we got the beer. <laughs> and so they fight. They have a still. They have a distillery in the back okay. of the warehouse. Yeah. And, okay. um, very small. And many, many, many batches to get through 150 barrels. Wow. But they distilled it all, and they, they're like, well, we're not going to age it. Let's just get it in, get it out. Um, and so they called it White Christmas. Okay. And so it's basically White Dog Distilled Anchor Christmas Sale wow. from 2012. That and is, I have a bottle for you guys. That is man, so exciting. Right now. We are, I, I, am, I am very I'm, excited about I'm this. I'm excited to taste it. And I love that it just shows something of the man that you are now tonight going to celebrate your biggest failure at Anchor Steve, <laughs> the godfather of craft brewing. Well, I'll tell you what, that's that's my personality. Basically. I love it. I love it. I think it's so cool. Well, it's also interesting to think about 150 barrels is close to 5,000 gallons, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah. and, and I don't know, you said the still was small. I mean, how many batches, did, the, the, how many times did it take to run it to? I don't know. They, it's two stills, you know, like the wash still and the spirit still. Okay. okay. It went through both. I want to say the wash was 6,000 liters. Okay. 1,500 gallons or it, so. It, yeah, it yeah. took, yeah. it took a long time. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, okay. Second question. Did it sell well? I mean, there was so little of yeah. it, like it was gone in a day. Sure. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So see, it wasn't that big of a failure. We, yeah. we turned, yeah, yeah, you know, lemons yeah. into lemonade. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, you know, they might have brought it back, but interestingly, Anchor got a cease and desist from somebody who had already registered the name White Christmas for oh like a, a spirit. Oh, boy. And so they couldn't even call it. They were like, sorry, well, we won't do it again kind of deal. Yeah. Um, so they couldn't okay. even do it again. Okay. Okay. So once yeah. again, naming is terrible. This is a great story. Yeah. Well, I think we should crack let's it. Try let's crack it. it. Let's yeah. I think it. we should. You I know, it's just fun to celebrate stuff that you love. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's where I'm at. Absolutely. Okay. So I am about to get my first sip of the White Christmas, and this was 2012. 2012 uh, release of Christmas Ale. It, this spirit was released in 2013 because it took a while that it's still at Okay. All. Yeah. Okay. Man, drinking this on the nose, I get like... It's not real aggressive, that whiskey note, but there are some spices in this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I get spices back. in this. Yeah. yeah. And maybe some of the spruce as well. Mm-hmm. You do get it in the finish. And uh, thank you so much for sharing this. Yeah, this happy is amazing. To do it. I'm glad you could uh, have the opportunity. Like a French whorehouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe, on, maybe not exactly. On. He hasn't even met Tom, and he's giving him shit. <laughs> Tom was no. priceless. No, no, that's great. good. It, well, it is. It is good. What's the ABV on this? Forty-five percent. So ninety okay. proof. Yeah. 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 This well, is neat. It's a really a privilege to uh, 
to have this opportunity to try this. Yeah, I mean, this just brings the whole thing full circle, too, because... I was so excited to talk to you about Anchor and having that it's Christmas. It just all fit. I, <laughs> Who would have known happy all these years later? As, as yeah. Bob Ross would say. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Jason, can you divulge nine years later what was in this beer? Or that's still uh, the recipe of the Christmas sale? Well, what I touched on earlier, all of those things were in that beer. Okay. So juniper berries, cardamom, lemon peel, orange flower water. Pretty sure there was cinnamon. Okay. Uh, ginger. Um, struggling to remember that, anymore. That, that, there's no, there's that's, probably that's pretty another five. That, that's I mean, it, there's a lot. Well, yeah. One thing you might say is that, um, like the Belgians say, if you can pick out the spice, you've used too much. And I think at Anchor, they adhere to that sort of philosophy, mm-hmm. don't they? And it was added in all different parts of the process, too. Like the cardamom went in the mash, really? not in the boil. Wow. The juniper okay. went in the boil. Um, the ginger was in the boil. And the ginger was actually dried ginger and not fresh ginger. Wow, okay. Um, because they'd done research about it, and you just don't get the same... The aroma they wanted was the dried stuff. We almost ran the city of San Francisco out of ginger one year, trying to procure <laughs> wow. enough for Christmas sale. <laughs> That's wow. nuts. Yeah, we bought it from San Francisco Spice Company, Okay, and uh, and they're like, we need to save some for the Chinese food joints. Like, we could not deny them their ginger, you know? <laughs> yeah, sure. So you uh, have to go uh, somewhere uh, else. We're like, holy moly. Of the brewery tours I've taken as, you know, a fan of craft beer, I think to this day, and I tell Pat all the time, my tour at Anchor was, and I don't know if it's because I was home brewing and I was, it hit me at just the most impressionable time, but seeing those big copper kettles, I mean, that scene right there, like I still have a photo that I took when I took the tour, it was like early 2000s. I still have it hanging over my home bar and through the glass, you know how there's like the old wood yep. and glass yep. windows? Fritz Maytag sitting at his desk, and mm-hmm. I'm like, wow. So I think just the romanticism of being there maybe caught a hold of me because when we took the tour, I know we went up and down some stairs that I thought, man, this probably sucks if you work here. Oh, uh, I, like, I, I, It's I had an old fit, building. I had a Fitbit at the time, and <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was doing uh, 40 to 50 flights of stairs a day. Yeah, it was a little cavernous yeah. in some yeah. ways, you know, and packed in there, too, at the same Wedged time. Wedged in there, yeah. yeah but but I, I totally agree with you. I'll never forget going in for my interview on site. I did a couple phone interviews to start, but walking up those stairs into that office and then looking out through the windows at the brew deck. Oh, yeah. And it's just magic. It's you know? beautiful. It's beautiful. It is Fritz, a beautiful room. Fritz designed all of that. And the, those kettles, they're not copper clad. Those are copper kettles. Oh, wow. wow. It's all copper. You know, the mash tun and the kettle. Uh-huh. The louder tun is a all copper top. It's actually carbon steel Oh, really? Bottom. It's not even stainless steel. It's carbon steel. Wow. Yeah. It wow. was paper thin. We actually needed to replace it. It was getting kind of scarily thin. But yeah, I mean, they had to replace the bottom of both the the mash tun and the kettle because, you know, copper is just going to wear out. And if you looked at the interior of the mash tun, it glistened because you got an agitator in there. The abrasiveness of the husks yeah. of the mm-hmm. malt just polished it. Was it was it. Wow. It was just, it's like a mirror. Wow. Unbelievable. That's interesting. That's great. You know, coming back to this book that we're reading, The Audacity of Hops, one of the things that's interesting to me is if I think about, like, maybe the first three breweries up there in Northern California. And Northern California was really where the craft brewing movement started, right? Yeah. So if you would say Anchor and Sierra Nevada and New Albion, it's really like Fritz chose the middle way, to borrow a Buddhist term. But mm-hmm. I mean, because 
you know, of course, Sierra Nevada is, I think, much bigger than Anchor. Oh uh, yeah, uh, yeah, much, yeah, much, much bigger. Ten and times of course, bigger. and of yeah. course, New Albion never really faded away. Yeah, they yeah. Did, they never got big enough even to be viable. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, he really guided that company in a in a really wonderful way. It would seem to me like. I mean, I don't know what adjective to even describe him. You know, I mean, really, just one of a kind, but such a big thinker and such a smart guy, but curious and really just driven. I heard many, many stories about New Albion. A lot of them were not good. Um, <laughs> Quality of product was a little variable, might we say. They used to call Anchor routinely being like, we're out of grain or we don't have any, we can't buy any, and they probably couldn't afford any, who knows what. And they said, can we co- just come by and buy some malt? And of course, Fritz was like, fine, come on by. And so they yeah. bring their pickup truck and they just yeah. load a bunch of malt into the back of the pickup truck and they'd be off on their way. And and uh, I mean, that's the one thing that Fritz, I mean, so generous. You know, he was so generous. And and there were a lot of great stories about Ken Grossman. Ken Grossman, before he started Sierra Nevada, would come by routinely and just pick Fritz's brain. And Fritz had all the time in the world for him. And uh, I'm sure if you ask Ken about Fritz, he would, you know, say he really appreciated that. And it really helped him, you know, get Sierra Nevada off to the right, uh, on the right foot. The craft beer industry in general, historically, has been pretty supporting of each other. But maybe, you know, some of that just comes back to Fritz because that was the template that he set. He, he definitely set a tone. He yeah. set a tone. Yeah. And, and he, even if he got played, he didn't care. You know, like I didn't hear a lot of positive comments about Jim Cook. Okay. But Jim sure. Cook did the same thing. He came by Anchor all the time in the early 80s. Oh, how do you do this? How do you do that? Blah, blah, blah. They rolled out the red carpet for him. Yeah. Um, but it didn't end up the same as Ken. <laughs> Let's just say that. Sure. Actually, that's a whole other podcast, I have mm-hmm. to say. But Absolutely. it's very interesting to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's been fun to read this book and just, I don't know, just kind of interesting. And Fritz, I mean, he just had this passion and dream and saw something that was going away and maybe would not be back. And door-to-door salesmen around San Francisco and try to sell a dream of this being a brewery. And staying viable. And I think it's impressive. You know, he's the same family that does Maytag blue cheese. His brother went the blue cheese direction. Yeah. And right? so he's from, he grew up in Newton, Iowa. Mm-hmm. And uh, Maytag washer and dryers. You know, he had the benefit of having money. He's very well traveled. He went to Stanford and he spent a lot of time in England traveling and this and that. But yeah, he definitely had a vision. And uh, that's why the anchor brewers all wear the whites. Yeah. Those white jumpsuits, those coveralls. That's what you wore in the dairy industry. That's okay. Cool. And so he's like, I want my brewers to look professional. Yeah. And okay. we, we are going to be a professional brewery as small as they were. I mean, Anchor, when he bought Anchor, they were going out of business. I mean, yes, right. toast. Right. Exactly. All the beer was bad. They yeah. were making like a thousand barrels a year. You know, so like later on, I heard stories about, you know, hey, Fritz, uh, you heard about these sour beers? You know, you're going to make some sour beer? He's like, I already made plenty of sour beer. I'm not making any more sour beer. <laughs> Trying to get away from that. Yeah, we're done. Um, so, I mean, stuff like that. I mean, he was trying to reestablish professionalism within this sure. part of the industry. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, he looked, he was wearing a suit and tie or, right. you know, like yeah. he looked very professional um, and ve- closely guarded everything that they did. I mean, he was very suspicious of like technology. Okay. You know, interesting. And, yeah. So when he sold the brewery to Tony and Keith uh, in 2010, there was one computer 
in the entire brewery, and it was in Fritz's wow. office. Wow. And they were making over 100,000 barrels a year and recording everything on <laughs> in paper. In a notebook? Oh, my In a God. notebook like they had always done. Holy cow. Yeah. The brew plan was done on a calendar that you that was in the lab, and you <laughs> wrote it down on in pencil, and you erased it every day because it always changed. But um, <laughs> oh, and yeah. that's amazing. I mean, he was old school, like kept everything very close. Not and even a whiteboard. Not even a whiteboard. No, <laughs> yeah. no. Which would be easier to erase. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think he was suspicious that you know if anything was electronic, you know, it could be stolen. Yeah, you know, okay. and so it very just one of a kind, one of a kind. Yeah, that's crazy. And how cool that you were involved in this brewery's history. It was a privilege. I'm going to make somewhat of an abstract connection, but we did a podcast in the spring with Victor Asimovich. Do you know Victor? I listened to that one, yes. Okay, yeah. I, I know him. I've met him yeah, a couple times. So, But Victor's initial foray into brewing was in the Amana colonies with Millstream Brewing in Iowa, mm. uh, which I think is very close to where like the Maytags are from. Oh, okay. I don't know. But because the Maytags are from Iowa, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Are the washers and dryers made there? I have no idea. <laughs> this is not an appliance <laughs> podcast, Pat. <laughs> All, right. All right. Pat Sh- is sure. no longer allowed to have White Christmas. <laughs> Fortunately, it was only made in 2012. <laughs> Shall we uh, transition into a, a bit of the A-B stuff? Yeah, I think so. So, I mean, when we talk about your tenure at Budweiser and thinking about consistency, and I think that's something that you really bring to North High, and probably that experience comes back around. Well, I certainly value consistency. I also fully acknowledge that there is no way that us, North High, or really any other craft brewery other than maybe Sierra Nevada can be as consistent as Anheuser-Busch. And that was probably the, one of the things I struggled with the most coming to small craft. I mean, even like Anchor. Anchor was still, like I said, only one computer in the whole building. Um, yeah. There was not a lot of technology at Anchor. I mean, Anchor was brewing the way they were brewing since the 70s at that spot. I mean, not much at all had changed. And, you know, everything's being recorded in, in notebooks and, and uh, the lab was fairly limited. It, it was old school. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I got used to at AB of having space age NASA level technology yeah. for process control. I mean, there are meters in pipes at Anheuser-Busch that when the beer goes through it, it tells you every analytical parameter <laughs> you want to know in real time. And then you can graph it all and wow. statistically analyze it any way you want. I mean, like, and, and and so, like, the solutions at Anheuser-Busch are totally different than the solutions at a craft brewery that's just starting up, especially. Um, and that was a steep learning curve for me. I mean, I, I'm like, how do I do stuff affordably? You know, I don't have, like, this unlimited account, you know, to buy these $10,000 or $100,000 pieces of equipment on a whim. Not on a whim. I mean, you had to justify everything at AB, but they bought it. Say what you want about August Bush third, but... He was very quality focused. If this technology helped quality, doesn't care how much it costs. Yeah. Buy it. Buy 10 of them. So it was really tough to like, you know, get a process. It took years, you know, I'll be honest. I mean, we're still working on it. I mean, we are not done being more consistent. 
But I do think uh, we figured some stuff out. And I do really value consistency. I think our customers value it and yeah. and our employees value consistency. You know, they want to know what they're going to be doing every day and they want to make sure that they're doing it the right way and feel good about how they're doing it. And so we're always trying. Oh, I think it's great. I mean, just having the pale ale recently, it's funny right after you meddled uh, with the pale ale when North High got the metal uh, silver on the pale ale, the very next thing i had to do back in columbus was of course we're like oh we got to get the pll you know <laughs> i'm sure sales like boosted that week well believe it or not like i don't think it went as big as it should have gone yeah, yeah. to yeah. be honest with you you know and here's another example so we're at Brewdog, and this is probably 2018 mbaa like regional meeting the master brewers of america yeah. association is yeah. that yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. master brewers with MBAA, you bring your own beer and you share it with everybody and, and whatnot. And we had had the chance to order another batch of cans. And so okay. we had, as you're allowed, uh, when you win a medal, you're allowed to ha- put the image on your can of the, the World Beer Cup. And so we put on the can and probably didn't display it well enough or something like that. Obviously, we brought it. So I'm walking out. And I'm just chit-chatting with this sales rep for some equipment company that I've never heard of or whatever. And I just met the guy. And he's like, oh, North Highs, I've been drinking your pale ale all afternoon. I'm like, it's great. Thank you. You know, he's like, I love it. And uh, I'm like, well, you must have heard, seen on the on the side of the can that we won a World Beer Cup for it in 2016. He's like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, you didn't see on the five cans you drank that day that we won a World Beer Cup? He's like, I didn't even notice. And that just goes to show, yeah, like, yeah. the awareness is, it's actually really hard. And, yeah. and honestly, we probably could have done a much better job, like, marketing it. Just make the whole label. Make the, the whole label. The silver it, metal. Or, like, yeah. Post every day on social sure, media about sure. it. But I don't know. I mean, it, it was, it was funny, you know, like, it, I would have thought. I agree with you. I mean, I, I would have thought the response would have been bigger. Well, but hey, it didn't, I, it didn't hurt. Let's I just found say my that. way down to yeah. the tap room to get one ASAP <laughs> when I got back. And as many beers go into that World Beer Cup, I mean, as you know, when you're there, you're like drinking all the spoils that didn't make it. That are like you know out in the hall, yeah, where where whatever oh, right. city it's yes, in, you know, it's like yeah, they still have like the little side label yep. of like what category it was entered. So pretty much. All the shit that didn't make it any further where they didn't use all the cans <laughs> is just at your disposal. So you've got yep. beers from all over, just like in, you know, just on ice when you walk right, into right. the hall, Pat. It's so you, pretty can, you cool. can just go around and say, oh, I'm, I'm looking for Imperial Stout. Exactly. Okay, yeah. Here exactly. we go. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yep. So, yeah, it is kind of neat, but as many beers... Uh, I think it's just amazing when anybody wins something at the World Beer Cup. I mean, yeah. and GABF as well, right? Yeah. I mean, it's I, just, I agree. It's so it's tasting great today, is what I'm you. saying. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So Absolutely. I think that's where yes. I'm and getting the with Nelson that. Nelson is back in it. So yeah. that's uh, awesome. Yeah, we, we had had a time where it was not in it. But uh, okay, yeah, that is a, that is a very good hop, a very unique hop. I, yeah. I think yeah, actually, I love Nelson. yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But I mean, the whole thing about winning a medal. I mean, everyone who's going to listen to this podcast course they know who won the medals and things like that but you know just the average person who comes into the brew pub you know they're like well didn't paps to win a uh, (laughs) blue ribbon and didn't heineken get some medals and i don't know i mean i think we all know but i think other people maybe not yeah i have okay i have a, a budweiser question so for a while you were 
Am I correct that you were the manager of the Research Pilot Brewery? That's correct, in, in 2004. Okay. I'm curious about this because unlike many breweries today who release a different beer every week or uh, every two weeks, Budweiser is not rolling out lots of new beers on the shelves. But did I read that it's a, it's a nine-story building? Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the Research Pilot Brewery and what goes on there. So it, uh, it is a nine-story building. It's nine stories because it's bolted onto the side of the brew house. Because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> that's where the steam was coming oh, from. Boy. Um, and so they're like, well, let's just, you know, we'll just add it onto the side and we'll just make it all like old school, like gravity flowing, basically, even okay. though it's not. I mean, it's everything's pumped and, and whatever. But yeah, the, the milling starts way up top or the grain handling's okay. on the roof. And then it goes through wow. and then you mill. And then you got the grist case, and then you got the brew house is on like floor number six. Uh, and then uh, I don't know if the whirlpool's on that floor too or not, but it, the process just flows. And so, okay. so fermentation's on four, lagering's on three, filtration's on two, packaging's on one. <laughs> that's and awesome, that's cool. though, really. I mean, yeah. You know, Mark and I did go to uh, Theakston's Brewery in the UK, which is also a gravity Victorian yeah. brewery. Although they only have three stories. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> but it is cool. I mean, yeah, it's good use of it. Yeah. As long as you've got a great elevator, it, it all works. I mean, I don't know who made the decisions about what to buy and whatever. I think they were trying to copy, you know, uh, Anheuser-Busch technology at the time. I don't even know when the place was built. I want to say it was the 70s. Okay. The brew kettle is 16 barrels. The fermenters are 12. And so you ran out of room every time you knocked out. You're like, oh, just throw away four barrels. <laughs> but it was, re- it was for research. It's it was for research, it's right? Re- it's yeah. research, right? Yeah, um, so. the, the brew kettle had a little baby uh, dual calandria, just like the big breweries. Wait a minute. What's a calandria? A calandria is the heating element. Uh, uh, is basically a shell and tube heat exchanger with okay. the ends cut off and okay. mounted vertically. So um, once it's submerged, you flow steam through it. It boils inside the tubes. And then convectively, the work comes out the top. And okay. then once you get full and you get it boiling, this like it's like a pump, and oh, so right. it, okay. you get okay. phenomenal heat transfer. And so, uh, Calandria is really—I want to say—came about maybe late '80s, early '90s. Before that, it was kind of this goofy birdcage designed in Anheuser Busch, where they had coils going all over the kettles, and maybe I had a little Calandria in the bottom. But yeah, now it's it's Calandrias, and okay. you know these days, like you can have an external Calandria where it's the same thing, shell and tube heat exchanger, but on the outside of the kettle. So it's much easier to maintain and clean and whatever, um, because these things wear out. I mean, these tubes used to be copper, copper tubes pressed into a stainless steel frame and copper would erode sure. very quickly. And yeah. so they'd wear out in 10, 15 years, you know, brewing 24 hours a day, sure. 365. And, uh, how do you get a calandria that's 10 feet in diameter out of your kettle that's all stainless steel around it. It's very hard. <laughs> yeah. You know? And so they've gone through a variety of designs there too, but now they use stainless steel tubes. So they last longer and whatever. So it had that just kind of mimic the boil. But when I was there in 2004, it had fully become the training facility for new managers. Okay. And so it was all new college grads from all sorts of engineering schools and UC Davis, like all over the country. And so it was basically like a frat house. I mean, they all were from out of town, and they were all ready to party, and they're all single. I mean, I had, I had a manager, or I had a, a trainee 
asked me one day, like, how many brews can we dump a day? <laughs> like, screw up. You yeah. know? And I'm like, none. None. We can't screw up any brews. <laughs> you know? Like, no, this is not just fucking around. <laughs> um, I would say about half of the production was probably raw material evaluation. Uh, okay. Mostly hops. So we would make a Budweiser and a Bud Light with a single hop. Because Bud and Bud Light had about eight different hops in them. Okay. So it had Hallertau, it had Saz, it had um, Willamette, it had uh, Alsace, Stris's mm-hmm. whatever you want to call Spalt, it. Yep. Um, it had, uh, and now I'm blanking out on everything else. I mean, it, it had some old school noble okay. hops. A lot of noble hops. A lot European, of noble, kind European of, yeah, or yeah. European adjacent. Oh, yes, right. And August Bush III wanted to taste what each hop tasted like. And really the only way, and this is legit. Sure. I mean, rubbing hops in your hand doesn't tell you a damn thing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Making a hop tea, which there's a process, the ABC sure. has it, you know, boiling it in wort or whatever. Not the same. Right. You got to make a beer with the hop. So we would make a single hop Hallertau Budweiser, run it all the way through the process, bottle it and all, and send it to his house. That's really wow. cool, though, actually. Like, yeah. as someone that doesn't drink a lot of Budweiser... This would rake me in. If you sold me a 12-pack of all 12 hops individually, like I would want to try this, all these single-hop beers. And so I actually did this once. Bill Weisenberger, who's a longtime brewer at Anheuser-Busch and former MBAA president of the Ohio region, okay, uh, schooled in Austria, knows a ton. I told him about this when I came here in 05. He's like, what? He's like, we need to taste these. And so I called corporate and I'm like, hey, can you send a case of these to Columbus? And they're like, sure. And then he's like, he tasted them. He's like, this is good. He's like, so he's president of the NBAA. Yeah. He's like, we need to bring this to an NBA. Sure. Sure. And I'm like, I don't know about that. Like, this is, this is company business. Mm. Oh, that's right. Then the other. The Miller, the then Coors, everybody, everybody else is right? Yeah, and sure. the meeting was at a Boston Beer in, in yeah. Cincinnati. Yeah, okay. And so I'm like, I don't know if I can ask. You know, like I, <laughs> I'm not. I don't have that kind of sway. <laughs> yeah. And so, so Bill's like, well, I'm just going to ask. And so he waited for the next corporate communication meeting with the vice president of brewing, John Serbia, came to town, and he walked right up to John. And he was like, Hey, I heard you guys have these. I want to do this for an educational event with the NBAA. Can I get a get a set? And John's like, sure. And so wow. he shipped them. Now, I will say that the environment that we did the tasting was suboptimal at best because I don't know like what was going on. But um, Boston Beer hosted the event, but they would not let the MBAA membership into the facility. Really? So we had to have the meeting in the parking lot. What? What? It's not that bad, though. I've drank a lot of beer in parking lots. Well, are you trying to assess like nuances in right. Budweiser? Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. I mean, you know that main drag that they're at. I mean, there's cars yeah, yeah. buzzing by. Not a, exactly a great neighborhood, yeah. especially back in 05 or 06 or whenever oh, this sure. happened. Just separate a Tetanang from a Saz. From Tetanang yeah. from Saz yeah, and yeah. Hallertau. Yeah. And so I remember like speaking to the crowd. It's a huge tent. Noise, yeah, exhaust fumes, whatever. And I'm trying to explain the nuances of each one, and I'm like, oh, this is lost on everybody, and not to their fault, it, you know, whatever. But yeah, so at any rate, okay, that was about half of the of what we did. Did you make new beers there? Yes. Okay. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that, because you you don't see a lot of things on the shelves. 
Um, or at least I don't. So innovation uh, in Anheuser-Busch is very challenging. Okay. Um, it was very challenging back then because of August Bush III's intervention, I would say. He had a lot of control, and he would outvote anybody. So even though it might be doing Everybody really, really wanted well, to do this beer. He was like, Sales nope, and marketing and production were all behind it. Six months, we're through uh, focus groups, we're through uh, piloting it and test markets and all that. He'd just walk up, take the plug, and just pull it out. Yeah. I don't wow. like it. Okay. And, and so that was challenging. But at any rate, the innovation that was happening back then, some pseudo craft stuff. So Shock Top. Yes. Remember Shock Top? Yeah, okay. okay. That yeah. was developed yeah. during my time. The original beer was called was Spring, very popular. Spring Heat Spiced Wheat, which was <laughs> really? a huge mouthful. <laughs> so they, uh, sales and marketing, uh, thankfully, canned that, and they went with Shock Top. There was a lot of attempts at blurring the lines between uh, wine and beer and spirits and beer. Okay. So we made a beer called Bistro 8, which was a Chardonnay-type flavored 8% ABV, like what? golden lager. This never made the mark. Right? Yeah. It was terrible. Like, oh. It was awful. How did, how did it become Chardonnay flavor? Did they use That's grape must or something yeah. like that? I or? don't rem- I don't think so. <laughs> I don't remember bringing in grapes. <laughs> okay. You know? Okay. So it was okay. just supposed to be kind of whiny. Could okay. be some Holotower Blanc. I mean, yeah. yeah that didn't exist back even, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking now, how would you yeah, do yeah, that? Yeah. But then? There, there was a uh, an attempt at making like a whiskey-flavored beer. Okay. okay. That really didn't go anywhere. There, we weren't really making anything that was craft. You know, right. we weren't making IPAs or, you know, anything like that. And then the rest of it was real garbage. And that was, sales was very concerned at the time about, what do they call them? Jaeger bombs? Oh, okay. So, yeah. so basically stimulants, hilarious. stimulants <laughs> and alcohol. <laughs> okay. So, you know, Jaeger bomb is what is, uh, Red Bull, Red Bull and Jaeger. <laughs> we developed a, a beer called B to the E. Oh boy. And it was, it was really just a B, the, the Budweiser B scripted capital B yeah. with super script E. Okay. Cause it had energy. Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. And it had caffeine, ginseng, and grana like Red Bull flavored like Jägermeister. Jesus. It was ghastly. Like when, if you think about offering White Christmas to me and then this, (laughs) it's not where we're at. Yeah. Interview's over. It made it to market. It was, it was produced for probably a year or two. I had a coat. I had a B to the E coat. (laughs) They got that far. (laughs) Wow. That was sad. That was a very sad time. And then the other thing that was really sad was, um, like I was saying, alluding to earlier, uh, like it is now, now we have the keto diet. Back then we had the Atkins diet yeah, yeah, and the South Beach diet and all the carbs are bad. So carb low, yeah. Was there a pork rind beer? There's not a pork (laughs) rind beer, but in hindsight, we should have done that. I mean, there's a whole Michelob Ultra thing, right, which is like... Mick Ultra had already come out. Mick okay. Ultra came out in 03 and really saved their sales for a couple of years there. And it still is saving their sales. Yeah, it's been, it's really been popular. a popular yeah, beer. Yeah. yeah. So, but there was concern that they needed more offerings in the low carb category. Uh, Miller had really glommed on to the whole calorie thing and were running ads 24 7 about how Miller Lite has half the carbs of Bud Light. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Because Bud Light was made traditionally. I mean, the mash, it was a super long mash, but there were no enzymes in Bud Light. No so enzymes, Bud Light okay. was was six to seven grams of carbs per bottle. Okay. Whereas Miller Light was three. 
Coors Light was three because they both had enzymes in them. They're like, we're getting killed in, in the media and the advertising and all that. We need another beer that's a little more flavorful or more beer-like than Michelob Ultra, which is three IBU and <laughs> no color and no nothing. It's like drinking water. It's like drinking water. So like, we need a beery, low-carb beer to go against Miller Light. So you, know, you pick the Miller Light color spec and Miller Light IBUs and all that kind of stuff. Well, what do you think came out of that was Bud Select. And Bud Select did really, really well. This. It's still around. I don't know who the heck drinks it now, but it's I still I didn't drink exists. it then or now, yeah. but I'm aware of it. <laughs> it I've was, had one. They made a lot of that beer. So that was developed when I was there. And okay. then I spent the rest of the time trying to make lower carb beer by adding every single enzyme on earth. Xylanases, <laughs> uh, uh. beta-glucanases, whatever. They all tasted <laughs> like hell. I mean, it was terrible. I'm like, what are we doing here? You know? Yeah. And so that was the RPB at the time. Okay. Um, was so, just... That. Nobody ever said, let's make a Doppelbach. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, it's a, it's a malt, it's a German heritage company. Now, but. I will tell you, uh, those beers were made in the 90s. Okay. So okay. they had the, the Michelob line had a whole line of like uh, um, Bach beers. I, and I do remember that. Now yeah. They mentioned yeah. It. yeah. Yeah. Faust um, yes, was a yeah. beer and they made a Doppelbach. Yeah. Michelob had a whole line of them. That's true. Um, yeah. and, and but I guess they, that didn't sell enough to be... The, well, that's the thing. When you're that big, if you don't sell a million barrels a year of a beer, not worth it. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. That, that's interesting. And it's also interesting to see like the drive behind like chasing the trend and trying to compete. I don't know. Even to this day, it kind of plagues the industry to some degree, yeah. especially as hazy IPAs. <laughs> I've seen enough of them. You know, <laughs> They're good when they're good, but... Everything's a hazy IPA right yeah, now. So I know. I know. I don't really love that trend following thing because it makes other things that are very natural and very great creative things come down when everybody's just chasing one thing. I was telling yeah. Pat like recently, go into Walmart, which uh, I've only recently started doing mm-hmm. because I got a little place uh, out of town in a more rural area. Right, going to Walmart. I'm like, oh, what kind of beer do they have here? Pat was coming up, actually. I should have more beer in the fridge. And, you know, of course, Bud Milk Whores for like eight of their selections. And the other 15 were all hazy beers. Everything except for Boston Lager. And I'm like, what is going on What's happening? Like when Walmart bonds on to the hazy IPA trend – I don't know what that tells me. Does it mean it's over or does it mean this is what everybody wants now? Like this is the norm. It makes you an instant beer expert to say, as long as it meets this one criteria that I can't see to the other side of the glass, (laughs) it's now good beer, uh, which I don't understand that because there are a lot of aromas and flavors to come out of a hazy IPA. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. And they are great. But when they're every single beer, it makes you start to question where is the craft industry going? I, I totally agree. And I probably have done like what everybody else has done, you know, and I've, I've been like, I've tried to stick to my guns and been like, I was really late to the game in hazies. I mean, know? you spent I so like, long no. trying to make your beers clear. Like, it seemed like throw an away hundreds of years of technique. Yeah. yeah. You know, to, to make it be, and then, you know, the, the, you mentioned it, the Mr. Fahrenheit, that was our first hazy beer and it ended up being really clear, but I'll tell you what, <laughs> it tasted amazing. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. we sold a shit ton of it. But what did we get? We got complaints. We got because complaints. it wasn't it's hazy. Not hazy. Yeah, it's not yeah, hazy. Do well, you drink enough. your beer? Look at it or drink it. Yeah. Like, what the hell's going on? So, 
I was late with hazies. I mean, I've been very resistant to the trends, but I end up doing it anyway because you have to. I'm running yeah. a business. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the problem. Yeah. Hey, if it's one of 30 styles you make a year, that's one thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not something that's going away. And it is something. They're good when they're good, but it's kind of interesting, though, when everything goes one way. And it's just funny to hear. Some of these Budweiser attempts to like, <laughs> no, we've got to fall in this niche now and stay relevant and keep those sales up and on a way bigger level yeah, than we're yeah, talking yeah. a small craft brewery somewhere. Well, I have another story about this too. So when I worked in Fairfield, first job out of college, this is the year 2000 uh, and 01, they had the ale, they called it the AYP, the ale yeast propagator. And so they, they basically had Chico. And uh, they would make the remaining, the last gasp of those Michelob ales. Yeah. And so they made a porter. Uh, they made a Hefeweizen, which is obviously not Chico's, Hefeweizen yeast. And then they made a beer called Pacific Ridge, which was oh, not I remember this. Michelob lineup. It was Northern California only. It was a total Sierra Nevada Pale Ale <laughs> knockoff. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Total, I don't remember this at total all. Total ripoff. All Cascade. And honestly... Tasted pretty damn good. I bet it was good. Yeah, it was I, pretty I, good. I think I had some of that back in the night because I lived out in the West Coast yeah. at that time. And yeah, yeah. So they made Pacific Ridge, but uh, you know, back in those days, and, I, and maybe still today, I'm not quite sure. Uh, Sierra Nevada bottle conditioned, and so the beer was hazy, and it had a yeah. little bit of yeast in the bottom of yes, it. Yes, that's true. Anheuser Busch beers are not <laughs> hazy. No. I mean, they are crystal <laughs> yeah. clear. Yeah, and so they got complaints they're like well this pale ale is doesn't you know doesn't look like a pale ale or whatever so you know what we did is we would filter the beer and then post filtration (laughs) add yeast we would add two percent hefeweizen to get it hazy and then release it that's interesting yes i mean that is crazy yeah now here's a question for you at the research pilot brewery was there any use of cucumbers (laughs) <laughs> oh boy, that's a whole separate podcast. <laughs> no. no, cucumber was yeah. never discussed. <laughs> we are thinking we might have to do a later podcast with Gavin on this because yes, he, yes. he does love cucumbers in the beer, right? Well, I've uh, I've come around on cucumber ale. I mean, I I don't drink it, but yes, I distinctly remember when he came back from Wicked Weed and he was like, "Dude, I had this cucumber beer. It was <laughs> mind blowing." And I'm like cucumbers like are you kidding me <laughs> i gotta tell you ju- i mean just at the tap room we, we had it this yeah. last weekend it's pretty good actually it, that mean, was the cucumber covered property how is it possible you get so much flavor from cucumbers I and beer and when you eat a cucumber it tastes like nothing i think it's just That's the right question. amount over here too when we had it at the pub yeah it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. Well, hey, we'll save that. For, save that for, for another That's podcast. a teaser for uh, right. Gavin's yeah. right. Gavin podcast. And then pickles. He, he <laughs> oh my God. About pickles too. Well, <laughs> I got a whole story on that, but we're not going there tonight. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save all that for another podcast. And I think Jason couldn't be more happy to have you on. And also, what an absolute honor to get to have the overproduction of Christmas <laughs> ale at Anchor Brewing from your tenure. The White Christmas, what an interesting whiskey that was, or whatever we want to call it. <laughs> yes. So interesting and uh, great to see you as always. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you guys coming, and uh, I'm glad we got to do this. It's been a long time. Glad I got to share the Christmas spirit with oh, you. And we're uh, yeah, it was great to see you guys. Hope to see All you right. again soon. 
Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, yes. Merry Christmas to you all. Thanks for listening.